Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone. Hope it's a nice day for you. <laughs> and yeah, I hope so, too. Like I, I think I said a few weeks ago, nowadays, depending on where you live, nice means raining, because we just haven't had enough in some places, and other places, we've had too much. But, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> but that's the weather. <laughs> I know that's, yeah, I know. So I know. this morning we're um, talking to someone who has a family connection in a way. Um, Mom, Caroline, and my father, John Herr, were introduced by Dan Isaacson, who was a college roommate of my father's and a college classmate at another in at another university of my mother's and introduced the two of them and our author today martha ann toll is the uh has some connection she'll tell us what her connection is to to the isaacsons martha is um the book that we're talking about is three muses and this is her uh her first book her first novel uh, but her reviews, essays, and short fiction regularly appear in NPR Books, The Washington Post, The Millions, and elsewhere. She's a passionate and avo- a passionate advocate for racial and social justice and the founding executive director of the Butler Family Fund. She lives with her husband, a climate activist, and their espresso machine just outside Washington, D.C. And this, as I mentioned, is her debut novel, and you can find out more at www.marthaanntoll.com, and that's Anne with an E. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Martha Ann. Thank you so much. Um, and Monica, <laughs> feel free to edit this, but everybody calls me Martha. Okay. <laughs> Um, shall I tell you my Dan Isaacson? Yes, you definitely okay. should. <laughs> well, unbelievably, um, Dan is actually a cousin of my husband's. Um, they're in a different generation, but they, I think their relationship would, is cousins. Um, my parents, when they were first married, were the upstairs neighbors of Dan's parents. And Dan's parents were like a third set of grandparents to me, and they introduced me to my husband. So it's a very fond connection. Oh, (laughs) how sweet is that? (laughs) So Dan's parents introduced you to your husband, and Dan introduced Caroline to her husband. Yes. (laughs) Wow, okay. What in the family? (laughs) That's right. That's That's right. right. So, Martha, tell us a little bit about your writing career. Sure. Um, So I uh, grew up in a family with a lot of writing in the water supply. My mother uh, was a professional copy editor and editor. My dad was a lawyer who was very passionate about writing and actually wrote two books unrelated to his legal practice. And so... Writing was in the water supply, and I was one of those nerdy kids who kept a diary, kept a daily journal, looked up every word that I learned. Um, And I got into, I always had writing intensive jobs. I'm a lawyer, and I always had to do a lot of writing. Um, I always wanted to write a book, and for reasons that are, I'm still trying to understand, my mom died pretty suddenly in 1999, and after she died, the floodgates opened. And I started writing novels. Um, 
And this is true for many debut authors. Those novels um, are still in the drawer. I was <laughs> able to get a couple of um, literary agents for a few of them, but none of them sold to publishers. And so along the way, I also started reviewing books because I love books and I read a lot. And even though I had a full-time job in social justice, I started writing reviews basically just to share my passion for books. So my book reviewing career got traction before I was able to sell this novel. So is this, so this is not the first novel that you wrote? No, I love to quote Anne Enright, <laughs> an, an Irish author who won the Booker Prize, who said, if you meet any debut author, you, it's pretty much guaranteed it's usually their 16th book. <laughs> <laughs> and is that about where you are? Is this like, did you really well, write I, that many before this? <laughs> I had written four novels before this, but when you take the account of all the revisions I've done for all my novels, I'd say it's probably closer to 40. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. So you, you have good experience then. <laughs> well, you learn by doing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What was it about Three Muses, do you think, that made it the one? I am not sure, but one, I have several theories. One is that like any other field, I think writing is an apprenticeship and we all have to do our 10,000 hours. And so by the time I was writing this book, I had learned an incredible amount. I didn't spend time in a classroom. Um, I really learned it by doing. You just have to write to learn how to write. Um, and I had been getting feedback from editors and agents and other folks, friends all along. And so I think this book maybe just is the end of my 10,000 hour apprenticeship. I don't really know. <laughs> uh, is it, do you find it easier to write now with that, with um, all those hours under your belt? <laughs> I've always been an easy writer in the sense that writing, I love writing and it comes easily to me. Um, in some ways, it's gotten more difficult because I'm much, much, much more self-critical. So I have always been a fast writer. And one of the things I had to learn was to really slow down. So I'm much more meticulous and careful and self-critical. It's, it's a bit ironic. <laughs> so you you were a pantser. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that's kind of the common uh, thing that that there you're either plotters or pantsers, and a plotter you know plots everything out and you know yeah. it goes along, and pantsers right by the seat of their pants. No, I that's correct. <laughs> I, I, no, that's honest to say, right by the seat of my pants. I usually say in an interview that it's organic. <laughs> <laughs> so. What was what? Tell us about what the Three Muses was is about. Sure. Well, I was looking around to start a new novel in 2010, and I was looking for something to frame the novel. And I was basically on the internet googling around, and I found um, a tradition in Greek mythology that is lesser known, in which instead of the nine muses that we know more familiarly today there were only three muses and those three muses are song 
discipline and memory. And that was like being struck by lightning for me <laughs> because I have a pretty strong music background. So I love the idea of song and I'm pretty obsessed with discipline. I feel like one of the things I learned in my early ballet classes and certainly in training to become a professional musician, the importance of discipline and work in any art form. And memory is something that really struck a nerve on so many levels. Um, first of all, this book is about a Jewish man and the Holocaust and the collective memory of Jewish people is very important to us. It's how we have held ourselves together over many centuries. Um, you know, we don't build big cathedrals. It's really about our collective memory. I also think that memory is incredibly important for writers because it's often the wellspring from where we get our ideas. Um, and, and I think memory is important for everybody. So, um, those ideas frame this book. And the story is that there's a young boy with his mother and brother in line to go to the gas chamber and with his life by telling the SS officer that her son can sing. At that time, he's called Yanko. Later in the book, he's called John. So Yanko survives the war by singing for the commandant who murdered his family. Eventually, he makes it to New York and becomes a psychiatrist, and he falls in love with a ballerina who has her own fairly traumatic history and, unbeknownst to John, is in an abusive relationship with her choreographer. Was there anyone in particular who inspired the character of John? I think John is a composite, and I did grow up um, being related to Holocaust survivors. And the more, the older that I got, the more really, really interested I was in their stories, and the more the Holocaust was magnified for me. I began to see that it was very close to my own birth. And each story makes it larger and more horrific. Sometimes we respond better to personal stories than to the mind-numbing statistics that we hear about the Holocaust. You know, there, there have been a lot of, been a lot of n novels written uh, and historical novels written lately about the end of the Second World War and the Holocaust, and, and I, I find them extremely interesting and, and horrifying too. But um, yeah, there's you know that did that had something to do with what uh, drove you to do this particular one now? I, I would say almost the reverse that I've spent my life um, trying to educate myself, and so this is sort of the end of a culmination of a process for me. I grew up in a very, very secular family. Um, and so I was interested in learning more about what I came from. So I have been reading about the Holocaust essentially my whole life. So mm -hmm. I, where there, I've read, I do read a lot of novels about the Holocaust. I think maybe um, two things that maybe distinguish this novel from others is really the, the book is really focused on John's life as a young adult after he comes to America and um, the impact of, of his memory and what it 
what the impact is on him as a human being. And also, I really did want to marry it to ballet. And ballet is a really separate idea for me. Um, so I was kind of excited when I figured out how to <laughs> put it together. <laughs> I, you know, I was going yeah. to say that this book differs from almost any other Holocaust novel that I've read in that um, it isn't so much about um, about being about the Holocaust as as like you said how that affected John for the rest of his life how those memories affected him um, he was just a child and yet felt guilt survivor's guilt um, did yeah. you have members of your family who had that issue Yes, and I think the implications are um, pretty profound. And I think that um, if we look at our world today, there are still these kind of horrific events um, going on around the world, and the impact on children is devastating. I mean, I turned on my radio this morning to hear about these mass graves that they're finding in Ukraine. I mean, that's news, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, John John was very fortunate that he uh, was able to be uh, taken into a family and educated and so forth and then became a professional. And that was that was really, you know, I, I really enjoyed that because I thought that was really wonderful of that family to take him in like that. And, yeah. and was and, that something that occurred? For, you know, were there a lot of children who were left without families and came to America and were adopted into existing families? Yes. I, I, it's crazy, but I know less about America. So there was an enormous effort um, to get European children to England. About 10,000 children were evacuated in something that was called the kinder transport. And their parents essentially had to give them up. Um, and most of them never saw their parents again. They were adopted into English families, and there were similar efforts here. The Red Cross and Jewish organizations here were doing the same thing. So it happened, unfortunately, truly only a fraction of kids got out. Um, but those who did, you know, lived to tell the story. I know that I have actually a close friend who grew up in Iowa City whose one of his parents was on the kinder transport, and he's... Um, a um, there's a society of, of descendants of, of people who are on the kinder transport to try to stay in touch with each other. Wow. So, talking about ballet. So the other character, um, you know, the other main character of this book, Katya, um, is a ballerina and a and a very accomplished one and with all of the details about ballet in here I feel like you must have had some ex personal experience with this <laughs> that's true <laughs> so I would say that my first love was ballet my mother I was lucky enough that my mother took me to a ballet class I think I was four um and I fell in love immediately and then she um, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia and she got me to the school of the Pennsylvania Ballet which was really fabulous and inspiring for me. They had amazing teachers, some of whom had come down from New York. Um, you know, the, the, they would commute back and forth in New York, many of whom were, um, 
from Russia, I later realized, um, who'd come over probably because of the Russian Revolution. Um, maybe, maybe World War II, I'm not really sure. I, I didn't really know as a child. So I absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, I really had no talent. No. <laughs> and I loved the discipline. And I also, um, something that was incredibly special there was that I could watch the professional ballet dancers practice. That just blew my mind and stayed with me forever. And you have a scene that's inspired by that in this book, in Three Muses. It's true. <laughs> One girl looks, she peers through the window and she watches the professional dancers practicing. She wishes that she could do that too. She's very, very driven. She wants to become a ballerina. Now, did you, despite, you know, your, your um, lessons as a child, you're writing this many years later, did you have to go back and do a lot of research about ballet to get the kind of details that you have in here? I did some. I have kept up with the field in the sense that I'm an avid viewer. So I definitely read, I read ballet reviews. You know, I read them all along growing up. I had subscription, long, long, long time subscription to the Kennedy Center here in Washington, D.C. Um, I did have to check stuff um, in terms of this correct spelling for the moves, even though I remembered the names of all the steps, but you're getting them in a garble frangley, basically. <laughs> um, so I did some, but I had very clear memories. That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, why don't you read a little bit from Three Muses for us? Thank you. So I was going to read two sections, and please tell me if you want me to split this up in the broadcast. The first section is the beginning and it's about John, and the second section is about Katya. Should I read them both and set them both up? Like, what's good for you? Um, let's start with John. And then, okay. Yeah, and then we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll go back to Katya. Thank you. Okay, so John is, the book opens, and John is a psychiatrist. He's in Paris for a conference on men, involving mental health professionals, and his boss's wife, uh, Mrs. Leventhal, his boss is named Dr. Leventhal, hands him a ticket to um, see the New York State Ballet at the Paris Opera House. And John doesn't want to go because, first of all, they're from New York. He was like, why would I want to see a New York ballet if I'm here in Paris? And second of all, he doesn't want to be around music because music is so traumatizing for him. But because it's his boss's wife, he has to accept the ticket. So that's the setup here. John settled into a bench at the edge of the plaza. Dusk was gray-pink, backlighting the opera. Balletto mains were arriving, tuxedoed men with stylish women on their arms. It wasn't just the evening gowns or the way women draped their shawls. Their pacing and carriage were glamorous, too, each with a distinctive walk, together a pageant. If he weren't answerable to Dr. Leventhal, John would have disposed of Mrs. Leventhal's ticket. He'd much rather spend the evening out here. Inevitably, he went inside. He picked up a program and made his way to the first balcony. The orchestra warmed up as a chorus took their place in the side boxes. The music began slow. Plangent tones paced to the speed of a man's forward tread. 
The chorus entered deep and serious and sad, as if their voices had taken the measure of John's memory. The curtain lifted on a snow-covered mountain against an aqueous sea, a scene to conjure myth. Dancers in blue and green leapt in unison, legs like arrows, arms overhead. They fell into lines fracturing like kaleidoscope patterns or forms in opposing mirrors. Overcome by jet lag, John dozed off. He was in his family's mind's living room, Mooty darning socks, Papa with his pipe, left thumb over the bowl, right paws to cock his silver lighter. Lopsided smoke rings meandered toward the ceiling, a few more puffs before the pipe hung limply from Papa's mouth as he grew increasingly absorbed in the evening paper. Rubbing his eyes, John slowly woke up. He knew the music. After dinner, when Yanko's schoolwork was finished and he was getting drowsy, Papa had played it on the gramophone. If Yanko was lucky, he'd be permitted a few minutes to sit with the grown-ups before Muti declared bedtime. The chorus sang with veneration, permeating the hall the way the smell of Muti's bubbling apple strudel filled her kitchen, or the first peaty drafts of Papa's pipe suffused the living room. John was flooded with grief. The music, a piercing shorthand for what was gone. All of them. Muti, Papa, even little Max, who hadn't been born until later. John had not thought about this music in decades, if ever. He recalled Papa starting the gramophone as Muti settled into the horsehair sofa with her sewing kit. Yanko was growing so fast, Muti had to let out the hems of his trousers. The sewing kit was black walnut, the varnish on the edges smoothed from use. It was from Yanko's grandmother. The orchestra moved with gravity and purpose, music as familiar as childhood. Now it was named Mozart's Requiem. Not only the people and the place, but this too had been stolen. John didn't need to stay. Dr. and Mrs. Leventhal would understand. Searching for the quickest exit, John struggled to call up something, anything to stanch his anguish. What value were his sessions with his training psychiatrist? Dr. Roth was useless. None of the patrons around John budged. He would be imprisoned here until the end of the act. Making another effort, he took a deep breath to marshal his defenses. And then, a lone ballerina sheathed in white floated toward center stage. The audience greeted her with shouts of brava. She was the muse of discipline. She cut through the whirling dancers with precision and exactitude. John had never seen anyone so exquisite. She was a reverie, an evocation of grace. Each fluttering arm motion dissipated his pain. Her dancing ordered the music, rendered it alluring. He strained left as she exited, as if by craning his neck he could follow her. She spun in duo with the muse of song, summoning peace and beauty. Together, the two made harmony. Their playfulness lightened John's mood. He glowed like a man feeling desire for the first time. Thank you. That was Martha Ann Toll reading from Three Muses about John. Now, a lot of John's memories go back to his childhood in, how do you pronounce the town? Mainz. Mainz. In Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in Germany. So how, how did you get the details of that time and era and place in the world? Um, 
So two different ways. Uh, my mother's cousin was a German refugee, and she um, grew up in Mainz, and she is one of many, many, many German refugees who said that they never knew they were Jewish until Hitler came to power. In other words, they were totally assimilated into German society, much like we have today in America. Um, Ellen wrote a beautiful um, memoir for her children and grandchildren that she shared with my family. And so she described her childhood growing up in Mainz, and I got a lot of details from that. And I also did a bit of research. Um, fortunately, you can find anything on the Internet about sort of, um, you know, decorative styles at the time, like horse hair sofas, that kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. You know, John's story uh, started when his when they they returned, he separated him from his mother and his brother Max, and his mother shouted out, "He can sing!" And that's when they took him away, and so he <laughs> put him someplace where he could sing for the commandant. And I that that part was that's what really changed his whole life was that he can sing. Yes, and I thought that was amazing, <laughs> really. <laughs> That's such a good point. And he's left with this incredible dilemma because his singing saved him and his mother saved him. But yet the memory and the trauma that he was the only one who survived is also um, handicapping. Right. Right. And he wouldn't, would never sing again. He, right. I just, yeah. It's, how did you, like the details about how he got to America, um, did those come from someone that you knew too? Well, I did, I had to do some research on that. I knew that Harry Truman opened the gates um, to come to America. I think it was 1948. So people that were waiting in Europe to come over waited for two years. I did some research to figure out where these people were being held in, in this place, Perkins Camp. Um, and and um, it took many years, to, you know, to settle people around the world. So uh, Yanko, then John, was pretty typical to not have gotten into this country until 1948. Um, my dad was also a World War II veteran, and I did talk to him about what those troop transport ships were like, because these the troop transport ships were converted over to bring refugees um, to America. So the sleeping arrangements that I put in the book were from my dad's description. Oh, that's cool. That's it is fun. Right? <laughs> I appreciate that. My dad is no <laughs> So I appreciate the fact that he has a little, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it true that before the war, the U.S. turned away Jewish refugees? Yes. The um, United States shut its borders along with almost every other country in the world, except for a short time, Cuba, Portugal, um was open and many, the people who got out, many of them crossed the Spanish border into Portugal, um, Japan, and China, Shanghai, a lot of refugees, but um, millions and millions of people were murdered because countries had shut their borders and Roosevelt was immovable on this. Jewish leaders in the United States understood what was going on and he was not persuadable. 
that's just so tragic. It really is true. Yeah. But yeah. then we see the same thing today. We see people trying to escape various situations and we won't let them in. Yes. And I, I, I feel like in writing this book, of course, I wanted to tell the story forward of, you know, our own history, but I also feel it's such, it's so important for people to understand this today that we have to open our borders. It's really, really important. Yeah. The thing that, that like that gets me right now about people complaining about too many immigrants is that we're also complaining about not having enough workers. <laughs> I know that's ironic. So why? Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you're Indigenous, Native American, or you came over in chains as a Black person, we were all immigrants or refugees at some point, and and we sometimes we forget that about ourselves. Yeah. Yes. So, did your like immediate ancestors get out before the war? Did they were they here before? Um, well, in Germany, uh, my my mother, my grandfather, and some of his siblings got out, but those who stayed in Germany were murdered, except for um, my cousin Ellen and and her mother, which was my is my great grandmother. Oh. And my dad's family came over a generation earlier from Ukraine. They parts of that family had been murdered in the. Russian pogroms. Um, so they didn't all survive either, but those who got here obviously did. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Martha Ann Toll, author of Three Muses, which is the winner of the Petrichor Prize. Did I say that right? Yes. I didn't know this, but this prize is the prize that Regal House Publishing gives. I feel so fortunate to have won it. The prize comes with um, an honorarium of publication. And I learned after the, I got the prize that petrichor is an English word that means the smell of wet grass. So now I have to figure out how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um... So the, is that actually how you got published was by winning yeah. this prize? Yeah. yeah. And how did you like apply or how did you enter? So um, they, so I, as I said, I have a very, very long history of trying to get published. And I actually had an agent for this book who was not able to sell it to a publisher. Um, so at some point um, I asked if I could, take control over the book again and I started entering into contests there are contests there are first novel contests and it started kind of being runner-up or finalist and I was like okay maybe there's you know maybe this book will get born basically <laughs> so I entered it into a contest that um you know if you're a writer there are different magazines and listservs and stuff that tell you about these contests so Regal House Publishing tell us a little bit about about what they are and who they are. Yes, they're they're a traditional publisher, but they're newish. They started in the teens, in the twenty teens. They're based in Raleigh. Um, it's a woman-owned business, and I've been completely thrilled with them. They have um, a growing list. They publish novels and um, YA, young adult fiction. They publish social justice books as well. 
And um, so they're they're a, a, pub, a traditional publisher, um, except they I feel like compared to some of the older publishers, they are probably more attuned to um, publishing today in terms of how they manage their deadlines. How, I, I don't actually know too much about their business, but, you know, they're very active on social media, which other publishers are not. Hmm. And they have a couple of imprints, looks like. Yes. Um, yes. The Fitzroy Books, which publishes middle grade, young adult, and children's, and Packed Press, which is full-length fiction, memoirs, and essays. So is that the imprint that yours came out uh, under? Our, or? our imprint is actually Regal House Publishing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. And um, so you entered their contest. Yeah, and, and I got a phone call <laughs> saying the the editor in chief wanted to talk to me, and my you can imagine that I had a lot of butterflies. In my <laughs> no, I was so here that I had one. This was in the summer of 2020, so there was a two year lag time between acceptance and publication, which is not that unusual. Sometimes it's 18 months, but there's it's there's usually a lag time between when your book gets accepted. And when it comes out, my book is coming out next week, September 20th. I think you're going to air this show. Probably a little after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the, uh, it's a prize for finely crafted fiction. Yes. I mean, I'm so (laughs) honored. It's such an honor. I just felt like, you know, struck by lightning basically i bet i bet i'm looking at their website and and um so the three muses is listed as the winner for the 2020 and there were like three finalists so um garden of the dead leave the night to god and the potrero complex so that's very you know very cool that they they had and the year before there they only listed one finalist before um you know for 2019 yeah no i just appreciate they do that they do this they also have a short story competition i think it's called the porter prize which um would lead to a, a publication of short stories so they're doing um what I call really good literary citizenship. I mean, they're really, really creating opportunities for writers. I'm incredibly grateful. Yeah, their website's very impressive. So, And if you're listening to this, if you're a writer looking for a publisher, you might want to check this out, regalhousepublishing.com. Yes, yes. Yeah. Awesome. So do you, you know, you mentioned that you have um, other books that you worked on before. Have you ever thought to go back and sort of do another pass on one of those to try and get it? Oh, yes. The one of them is um, the one that I is trying to find a home and has not found a home. It's it's out on submission various places. Um, That is a immersive look into the classical music world of the 1980s in Philadelphia. It's also a love story. Um, and so that would be the one that I would hope could sell. I have, have not succeeded in doing that yet. Um, and then I'm working on a new book, which is, I, I have a long way to go on that. I, I don't, I have close to the first draft and it's surreal and it's about a girl stuck in a painting. 
<laughs> okay, that's that's interesting. <laughs> wow. So, tell me a little more about your life in in music. Yeah. So that was I was going to ask her that too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I um, the ballet school basically said when I was twelve or thirteen, like you have no future, and. Um, <laughs> Incidentally, I had been taking music in school. My parents were very interested in our musical education. I'm one of four girls. Um, and I uh, got really serious, I guess, around age 14. Something in this story says that I really needed an artistic metier, basically. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to study with an absolutely extraordinary teacher named Max Aronoff. Max was in the first graduating class from the Curtis Institute of Music, and he was a founder of the Curtis Dream Quartet. And he was an incredibly fabulous viola player. That was my instrument. Um, and also an enlightened teacher. Um, you will not be surprised, you've probably heard it a million times, that many accomplished musicians are terrible teachers. They, they don't <laughs> really know how they do what they do. But he had, like, deconstructed his whole art form. And I just... He just changed my life. I mean, I feel like everything I know in life that I didn't learn from my parents, I learned from him. He was really an extraordinary teacher. And he he basically taught me how to practice, which is maybe sounds obvious, but it's what a young musician needs to learn. And it's not that common for teachers to be that clear about how to do it. Wow. So you learned and... So I worked my little butt off and I went to college and I was a music major and I played a lot. I played in orchestras, chamber music, went to music festivals over the summer, um, including when I moved to Washington, I played semi-professionally in an orchestra here, but somewhere in the middle of college, um, this is a theme. I really, <laughs> I do better with words. Like I really, <laughs> I'm really a word person. So I ended up going to law school, which in my life was, that was the right decision. <laughs> I, I was good in music, but I wasn't necessarily good enough to have any control over the kind of career I would have wanted. And what instrument did you play? Viola, which is a little bit bigger than a violin, smaller than a cello. It's basically the alto voice. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, we talked about, the Isaacson connection, and you know Dan was also a musician. That's you know what I don't think I knew that. Yeah, in fact, he oh, gosh, yes. he, he was a guitarist. He played folk guitar, oh, yeah. and yeah. and he yeah. taught Caroline to play guitar. That's um, so cool. I he, know that he had Adventist <laughs> told me that he met a lot of really amazing early folk musicians. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. In my mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, he tells a story about hanging out. His sister had an apartment in, I think, in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. Or I'm not exactly sure when. No, it would have been earlier than that, probably. But he, he talks about um, meeting um, Bob Dylan there. Yes, and the great Scottish um Gene Redpath, I think they know. Yeah, and I think he he thought about becoming, you know, a professional musician, trying to make a career out of that. And I think it was, it was somebody from the Travelers, maybe, who said, "Don't, don't do it." 
<laughs> do it as a hobby. Don't do it as a yeah. profession. It's a really, really hard life. It's yeah. A really hard- yeah. And, but his son, Laurie, is a professional musician. Yes, he's really, I know that he's a really fabulous trombonist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And a conductor. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he doesn't play anymore because of um, a number of reasons, but he, he does conduct. And uh, he was just last, we're in touch fairly frequently. And I know last winter he was, and he teaches at the um, Boston Conservatory of Music. And he was doing a um, sabbatical where he was studying, conducting live orchestra for ballet. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Yeah. Totally. (laughs) So before we run out of time, let's hear a little bit from Katya. Thank you. So this also from the beginning of the book, and this is Katya's from Katya's perspective, so we've seen John at the ballet and he sees Katya dancing the music discipline. Um, this is Katya's perspective on her own self on stage and afterward. Lars, playing the old fawn, stood with Katya readying their entrance. Adjusting his horns, he whispered ballet's favorite good luck term, mared music of discipline. Thanks, Lars, you too. Mr. Yanikov, Mr. Yanikov, I'm sorry, is the choreographer with whom Katya is enmeshed in many ways. Mr. Yanikov paced the opposite wing, scowling. Head down, he gave the impression that his company had just suffered appalling notices and not that they were instead poised for opening night before the cream of Paris. Katya felt imperative to gather her forces and ignore him. She fingered her tutu netting and shook out first her right leg and then her left. Three muses in Paris. Katya was relieved for the vast physical expanse separating her from her choreographer. And the expanse between her and Mama, Mama had never even seen Katya dance. Her absence was enveloping, a reminder that despite being embedded in the company and despite Mr. Yanikov, who had willed Katya the stage, conferred on her this feast, Katya danced through life alone. Her memories had grown hazy with time, a few. Mama's toothy grin when she handed her daughter her school lunchbox. Mama's throaty laugh, her butterscotch house dress with the white rickrack. For years, Katya kept up on ongoing kept up an ongoing monologue addressing, addressed heavenward, as if her soliloquies could coat the void that was Mama. Places, the stage manager called. Katya made a last adjustment to the ribbon on her right point shoe and felt the house feverish with anticipation. Act one began. Katya leapt on stage, parting the dancers as if her luminous heat would grill them alive. To dance was to live to till motion, to impart the joy that welled up every time she took to the stage, her body the vehicle for her art. The lights were blinding. As the music intensified, she skimmed the energy from the audience to breach another dimension. Transcending reason, she danced through raw emotion and spun toward a new center. 
she had an eerie sense that someone out there had understood her, that she had spoken directly and been heard, that her endless labors had been worth it, the blisters, the pain, the exhaustion, the interminable practice, to dance the music of discipline, to feel what she felt. And that was Martha Antol reading once again from Three Muses, which I understand has gotten some pretty good um, reviews. Well, I'm incredibly grateful. It's been on a shout out from the Washington Post and from Vulture, which is an arm of New York Magazine, and also a couple of the ballet magazines, Point and Fjord Magazine have picked it up. And um, it hasn't been published yet, so I'm really excited that it all happened before. <laughs> that is pretty amazing. It is amazing to me. I am very grateful. <laughs> oh, the Butler Family Fund. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yes, thank you. So I was uh, practiced law for about eight years, and then I had this, was offered this incredible opportunity to run a family foundation. This is not my family. I was the paid staff, somebody else's family who had inherited some money and wanted somebody to run it to give the money away. It was, it was a philanthropy. And um, we focused on homelessness and housing, um, affordable housing, and also on criminal and racial justice. So for 26 years, I got them off the ground and ran the organization, and we gave millions of dollars away to these areas, and we were working with the most extraordinary advocates on the front line of justice and, and social justice, and it was, I loved it. I loved it. It was a wonderful job. Now, I see on your website that you were recently elected to the Penn Faulkner Foundation Board. Can you tell, tell us what that is? Sure. Yeah, I'm so excited about that. So Penn Faulkner is a writer's organization based in Washington, D.C., with a lot of national um, reach. Um, it's by writers and for writers, and it's basically its mission is to bring writing to the community. So Penn Faulkner does a lot of different things. Um, I'm really happy. I think I can bring some of my nonprofit expertise. So I'm really delighted to be on the board with all these amazing people. Um, they run a writers in the schools program where writers go into the DC public schools, and they also run a number of very prestigious awards. And they do wonderful programming to bring writers from all over the place um, to the public. Wow. And I think, you know, their their awards are pretty prestigious. The Penn Faulkner Award. I mean, yes. yes, there's a First Fiction Award and there's also a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Malamud Award. And um, there's a third award. I'm very new to the board and I'm completely blanking on the third <laughs> award. But yes very prestigious awards. I'm so happy to be part of this organization. Wow. How did that, how did that come about? Um, I knew, um, I've known about them forever because I go to their programs a lot, particularly pre-pandemic. Um, and I reached out to them because I really cared about keeping my hand in, um, you know, some kind of community service work, social justice work. And um, I thought, well, maybe they would find my, you know, long career in a not running a nonprofit useful. And they were, um, they, they interviewed me and then they voted to put me on, I think partly because I'm bringing a lot of prof- useful professional experience. Wow. 
I'm curious if um, when you talk about running a family foundation, have you seen the new um, Maya Rudolph's new TV series, Loot? No, I have to see that. I've definitely heard about <laughs> it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, because that's what it's about, basically, a woman who has finds herself with an awful lot of money and um, decides to give it away through this family foundation. Out of Patagonia doing that. So this organization was quite small. And one of the challenges that I had as the executive director was to try to get us at the same table with some of the bigger foundations. So over time, we were working collaboratively with the Gates Foundation and the Ford Foundation. Um, And I think what we had was a bit of a tugboat um, effect where we'd go out first and try to do the more risky grant making and then try to bring others behind us. And we'd also collaborate a lot and learn from other folks. So um, we were a bit of a hybrid in that sense. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you weren't, it wasn't a billionaire's foundation, but. No, (laughs) we had a very small endowment that was invested is it's still going is invested to, to, um, to give money aware, the grants are relatively small. And one of the things that I did, because the board wanted to expand its reach, um, I basically brokered um, a long-term, a series of long-term contracts with a very, very large European-based foundation that um, turned over money to us for us to re-grant and expand their footprint in the United States, but also to expand our work around homelessness. That was a really exciting partnership. Wow. Now, I also, looking at your website, um, there's a link to a review that you wrote uh, of Nina Totenberg's um, memoir, Dinners with Ruth. Yeah. Um, And that must have been quite – so did did you actually talk to to, uh, Nina Totenberg? No. I I don't know Nina Totenberg because you can't review a book of somebody that you actually know. uh, NPR assigned me that that book review. And my review just came out this week. It's on the NPR website. Um, it was it's a really interesting book. It's fun. I mean she she has an incredibly interesting life and she also provides really interesting insights into Justice Ginsburg, who was very private actually. And so um it's it's just a delightful read. Wow. Wow. How did you get to write reviews for NPR? Well, I started, um, I think I mentioned this earlier. I, I, I went, I started because I had, was really having trouble getting published. I.e., nothing I was doing was getting out in the world. So I went to the founding meeting of the Washington independent review of books, which is a wonderful, um, online book review here in Washington that is, I mean, it's national because it's, um, you know, online and I started writing for them and I just loved it. I mean, I loved the idea that you could review books and share your enthusiasm with readers. So I just kind of built up a practice and, you know, I applied to NPR several times and then I was, I was lucky enough that somebody opened the door for me there. And, um, so it kind of went from there. It just, I had, a pretty long apprenticeship before as part of my 10,000 hours before I was about <laughs> to write for NPR, but I, I have been writing for the Washington independent and a really terrific daily book blog called the millions for a long time before I got to NPR. 
So the millions, I hadn't heard of that. So tell us a little bit more about what that is. Oh, I totally recommend to all our listeners out there. The millions is an amazing publication that comes into your inbox every day. And it's basically all about books. So it's a lot about books that are coming out currently. It's book reviews, but it's also essays about books and a lot of terrific interviews. Um, I do interviewing for them. I interviewed uh, Laura Worrell, whose book, um, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm, is terrific. That's coming out the same day as mine. Um, but I, I, I frequently interview authors there, and I, I also write essays for them. But it's just a great publication, and it's free, and you can get in your inbox. How do they make money? <laughs> um, well, I was just going to say, please buy a subscription. <laughs> so they do, they, they ask people to pay a $60 a year subscription, which is totally worth it because it's, it's got so, so, so much content. And then they also have advertising. Oh, very um, cool. Because it's online. They can do advertising online. Wow. And so it's, what's interesting to me is how you – you approached becoming a writer, essentially, although this was your, you know, what, second career, third career. This is your third career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, you didn't expect to go out and make money from it right away, sounds like. No. And the thing is, I think this is so true for all writers. Writers want to get published because it's like a tree falling in the forest. Otherwise, you're writing, but you have nobody to read what you're writing and it's really a partnership writing is a partnership between writer and reader and i will admit to having years and years of pretty intense despair about not being able to get fiction published so the reviews had a great psychological impact for me i i had the joy of sharing books that i love but i also have to say it was great to have a byline it made me feel great and it still does yeah yeah but now you've got an actual novel to hold in your hands. How does that feel? It is absolutely thrilling. I'm, it's a dream come true. I'm, I'm really very thrilled about it. Oh, I bet. I bet. Tell us about the cover art. Um, I love the cover art. I really had nothing to do with it. The <laughs> Regal, House, Regal House has an in-house designer, um, and she did a beautiful job. Her name is C.P. Royal, and I, I never interacted with her, which I think is pretty normal. Um, you don't, the authors really, it's very common for authors not to be engaged in, in the person who does, with the person who does the cover art, just as it's very common for children's writers not to know their illustrators, which I still find astonishing. But yeah, they came up I with, know. <laughs> they came up with a cover. What I love about it is I feel like it tells the whole story of the book. There's barbed wire going across it. And there's a ballerina tying her point shoes. And then the title font is sort of like a, looks like ribbons from point shoes. So I, I just love this cover. It is great. And then you've got some great blurbs in on this too. One from Kiesi Lehman, who we interviewed some few years ago, the author of Heavy. This is phenomenal writing. It just is. <laughs> How wonderful is that? <laughs> wonderful. No, I'm so grateful. I'm an incredibly huge fan of Kiesa Lehman, and I just think he's such an incredibly important, beautiful, insightful writer. He has so much to teach us. And I, I just feel incredibly blessed and lucky that people were willing to endorse the book the way that they did. Now, did you 
get the endorsements or was the publisher, was that the publisher's um, job? I did that. And I, I, by, by the time this book came out, I'd been sort of in writing land for about 17 or 18 years. So <laughs> I knew people, some of them were total strangers, but some of them weren't. And I, you've got to know these people. I noticed that you did a number of writer, writers' conferences, workshops, and so forth. Do yeah. you have a, a favorite that um, you would recommend? I, I I have done some. I've done less than meets the eye. I <laughs> My world changed when I went to the Tin House Writers' Conference. I applied to it um, mainly because one of my friends said, Martha, you have to, like, get out in the world because you're in your garret and you're too depressed. <laughs> <laughs> So I applied and I was really lucky I got in. Um, so that was in 2012 and that changed my life. It was transformational. And you met a lot of people there, I'm assuming. I met um, a lot of people there. I had an incredible teacher in Paul Harding, whose writing I adore. I just, he, his way of expressing himself and teaching writing was really, really transformational. I mean, he has a, I don't really know how to explain it. I just, I love what he does. So I, I think he communicates with me in a really great way. Uh, and then other people I had, had met or reviewed their books, but I didn't know them, but I loved their writing. So I reached out to them. Oh, wonderful. So there's, you put a lot of work into this, not just the writing, the editing, the finding a publisher, the getting the, <laughs> the getting the other writers to write about it. Um, the marketing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think it's a fair statement. I don't think it's that unusual for debut authors. I think, you know, when you're a newbie, you got to go through your paces, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did. I agree with you. I did put a lot of work in. I'm not going to deny that. And when will your next book come out, do you think? I don't know. I don't have a publisher for my next book. So that, that'll be a project after, after launch for this book. Absolutely. So hopefully we'll see the light of day and I'll let you know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today, Martha. Thank you, Monica and Carol. This was so much fun and I can't thank you enough for making this space for me and for this really interesting conversation. Thank you. Well, it's a wonderful book and I really enjoyed I. I very much enjoyed reading it. It it is a a literary novel. It's um in the best way, put it that way, cuz there's still a, there's still a story. It's there's a, there's story, but there's also beautiful language. Thank you so much and I can't close without giving a shout out to cousin Dan Isaacson. Dan. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And Caroline, do you have some closing words for us? Yes, I do actually. Well, I had uh, this. This this is a story. This book is a story of what happened to two gifted people, and the people who were influential in their lives. And that was I was just amazed. I thought it was so wonderful. Those people that uh, adopted John and gave him that, you know, because they had lost a son in the war. I mean, it was just and the ballerina. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you just get you get caught up in it. You just really do. You really do. Oh, it's so nice to hear. I'm so honored. Thank you. Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.